Welcome to the Gathering Chattanooga's audio resources. This message is part of a teaching from the Gospel of Mark. For more information on the gathering or to find additional resources, visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Again, that's gatheringchattanooga.com. And please consider subscribing to this podcast. We hope you enjoy and that God blesses you richly through the teaching of His Word. Good morning. You can all be seated. Good to see everybody here today. Again, welcome those of you who are watching online. It's great to have you as part of our service. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 3 as we get started today, continuing our series in Mark, walking through this book, looking at what it is that the Holy Spirit uh, inspired Mark to write based on the testimony of Peter and what we are to know through this particular gospel. I've said before, I like to remind us that there are four gospels that give account of Jesus and each one is designed by God to present a particular uh, perspective. And so a lot of times the writers would take stories or accounts that would happen in one place and they would move it around because there is a purpose that they are writing. That doesn't make it untrue. It doesn't mean that it is wrong because they're not trying to write a history. They're trying to write a a theology, a, a, a book of God, a letter of God to communicate who he is based on what they have been called to write. Mark is, is writing primarily to, uh, Roman Christians that are uh, under the gun and he wants to make sure they understand that Jesus is the son of God that Jesus is reliable, that they can trust him, that when things get difficult, they can turn to him, that he is there, he is capable, he is powerful, he is loving and compassionate and full of grace. And so we've seen that as we've gotten to this, this point, and we will continue to see that today as we change scenes. As a matter of fact, as we look at this, we're looking at two different scenes, as you just heard read to you. Uh, scene one is Jesus with a crowd by the sea which is in verses 7 through 12. And then scene 2 is Jesus with his apostles on a mountain. Those are verses 13 through 19. And in these two scenes, we're going to look specifically at the attraction of the Savior. We're going to look at the power of the Savior. And we're going to look at the grace of the Savior. So as we look together, we're going to start with the attraction of the Savior. And this is in verses 7 and 8, the first part of 8, where Jesus... uh, Departed with his disciples to the sea, a large crowd followed from Galilee, a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. What we'll see here is that there is a universal appeal to Jesus. And I'll explain that more in just a minute. But first, I want us to think in this, think about this in the context of the previous section. And you're going to hear me say that a few times. We're going to look back at the context. We're going to look at the context to make sure that we understand and get it right. It's always important when you're looking at scripture. Don't just pick out a verse and run with it. Pick out a verse, look at the context, and then run with it. So we want to make sure that we get it right. But if you look at the context in the previous section that we covered last week, which is verses 1 through 6, there's a different setting. And the setting at that point is in the synagogue. It was what we would call the church of the day. It was the Jewish church of the day, if you will. It was in the synagogue. And that's in verse 1 of verse 6, tells us where they were. In verse 2, we saw that the Pharisees were watching Jesus very closely. 
Now, there are times if somebody comes and, and preaches here, I might be sitting there and I'm listening very closely. Now, what I'm listening for is to make sure that they are biblical in what they say. I want to make sure that they get it right out of Scripture as best I can tell. That's not what the Pharisees were doing that day. The Pharisees, the Bible tells us, was, they were watching Jesus closely in order to accuse him. That would be more like me sitting there listening critically to whoever's speaking here so I can try to find one of those gotcha moments. See, that's why we shouldn't have had you. Because you got it wrong. And, and that's, the, that's the attitude that is being portrayed by the Pharisees. But it wasn't that they were trying to get the word of God right. They were trying to get their traditions right. They were trying to make sure that uh, that every jot and tittle was followed in the law. And we see that Jesus wasn't about that. Jesus was there to set the record straight on what the mind and the heart of God really was in the law, uh, ap apart from these traditions that were man-made, built into uh, and hedge around the law so that the people wouldn't get anywhere close to it. But the problem was, is that God didn't say do that. God did not do that. And so Jesus is here trying to straighten that thing out, trying to make sure uh, that the people understood what was going on. In verse uh, 5, we see that Jesus is angered and he's grieved in his heart. Why? Because of the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees. And we see that hardness on full display in verse 6 as they begin to plot with the Herodians to kill Jesus. And we talked about the, the irony of that, that they were actually plotting to do that on the Sabbath. So we have that uh, where Jesus actually performed a miracle, where he had a man before him who had a shriveled hand, and he said, stretch out your hand, and he stretched out his hand, and he was healed. Jesus performs this miracle in their presence at, at church, if you will, and they rejected him. And now we see in the second part of 8, where the large crowd came to him, because they heard everything that he was doing. Now I've heard people who, I've heard pastors who preach on the fact that this was a crowd that, that uh, they didn't want anything really to do with Jesus. They just wanted what he could give them. And there may be some truth to that for sure. Uh, it says that they were drawn to him because of his works. But the reality is, is they heard the gospel when they were there. If you look in Luke's account of this same instance, Luke says in verse 18 of chapter 6, they came to hear him. They didn't just come to say, hey, heal us. They did say that. They didn't just come to have demons cast out. They were there for that. They came to hear him. They weren't listening to find something that was wrong. They were coming to see if there was something right. And so they listened and they heard him. Jesus had such an impact that they were pressing into him at risk of crushing him. And so he had his apostles make sure there was a boat so he could get off shore. It's like, okay, we're at the edge. All right, they keep pressing. They're pushing in on us. Risk of crushing. Get in the boat and get out in the water. That's the kind of impact. That's the kind of draw that Jesus had of people as though they were starving for food or dying for thirst. And when I, when I thought about that, it drew me back to Isaiah chapter 55, where God says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food 
and your wages on what does not satisfy. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. Well, 700 years later, Jesus stood up at the festival of booths in Galilee in John chapter 7. And he said this, he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of water, living water flowing from deep within him. You know, there is a world around us that is starving for something to feed their souls. They're looking for something to bring life to the spiritual desert that they're wandering in. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're wandering around trying to find something to satisfy. Maybe you're looking in every place you can because there is a, a thirst and a, and a starvation in your soul. And you just need something to provide you something meaningful. You're looking for real answers to real problems. And I want to encourage you to look to Jesus. Look to him and you'll find that he is satisfying for your hunger. And maybe God is calling the rest of you to be the ambassadors through which he provides relief. The gospel is an offense and it is a folly to those who are hard-hearted. But those who are being redeemed will be attracted because they get a glimpse of the Savior. They get a glimpse of the one who, who gives life and they're drawn to him. There is an attractiveness to Jesus. So what do we know about this crowd and what does it tell us about the, the appeal of Christ? Let's go back to verses 7 and 8. Let's look at that again. He says, there's a crowd from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea, beyond the Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. And when we look at that, if you look at that geographically on a map, what do you see? Well, if you look, you will see that Galilee is to the west Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea are to the south. Beyond the Jordan is to the east. And Tyre and Sidon, can you guess where they are? Oh, really? To the north. That's all that's left. <laughs> north, south, east, and west. What is Mark's point here? It's that people from every geographical direction came to see Jesus at the sea. They came from all directions, all the way around, north, south, east, and west. And if you look at Revelation chapter 7, John says in his vision, he says, After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one can wonder, can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. These are not people who are religious or moralist, where they just do all of the outward signs to make sure that they look good for the people who are watching. These are people who are broken and humble, and they are coming from every walk of life, from every corner of the globe. In, verses, uh, in chapter 2, verse 17 of Mark, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. It is those who know that they are sick. They know that they are broken. They know that they cannot save themselves. You are not going to go to a doctor as long as you are convinced that you're healthy. You're not going to go to a doctor if you understand there's something wrong with you, but you're too stubborn to go to the doctor. You're going to stay home. 
And you're going to be ravaged by whatever it is that's going on in your body. It's only the ones who understand that they are sick that are going to go and try to seek out help. It's not going to be the hard-hearted. It's not going to be the self-righteous. It's going to be those who are broken and understand that they're broken. Jesus draws people to himself who are hurting and whose hearts have been softened and tenderized by the Spirit. Look with me at John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus talks about his sheep, those who know him, those who he is saving, those who he is redeeming. He knows them and they know him. And what happens when you know the shepherd? If you're a sheep and you know the voice of the shepherd, what do you do? You go to the shepherd when he calls. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 15. We looked at this passage last week. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So are you tender towards the gospel? Are you soft-hearted? Are you humble before the Lord? Or are you a self-made autonomous individual who doesn't need help? Who's got it figured out? And, and, and I don't know that there's anybody in the building, may not be anybody watching, who would say that you are. But the question we have to ask is not do we say who we are, or we can fool ourselves, but who are we really? Do we practically live in such a way that we are self-made people, that we are autonomous, that we don't need anybody, we don't need a Savior? A lot of times people, Christian people, will, will go to Jesus to save them for eternity, but not deliver them day by day by day. To lead them, to guide them, to, to grow them. How are you living today? Are you living like someone who is humbled before the Savior? Or are living as your own God? I want us to jump down to verse 13 now. Look at verse 13, Mark chapter 3. Jesus went up on the mountain and he summoned those he wanted and they came to him. Same point. This is the attractiveness of Jesus. He goes to the mountain. He summons those he wanted and they came to him. The shepherd calls. The sheep respond. He goes, they go with him. And I find this is encouraging in at least two ways. First of all, if you know that you're lost and broken, if you know that you have need and you hear the good news that Jesus came to pay your sin debt, that he came to forgive you completely, to transform your life, to secure your eternity in paradise, and then you believe that, then you can be certain that that is the voice of Jesus summoning you. If you hear and you believe that is Jesus calling you, and so you can run to him. If you take the, the commission of Jesus seriously, the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, if you take that seriously, then you can be sure that as you share the gospel, it is Jesus making the call and some are going to hear and some are going to believe. Some are going to be saved. Not everybody. Didn't happen in Jesus' day. Most of the Pharisees never trusted in Jesus. Some may have. May have Nicodemus who did. But, but most of them didn't. But some Hear and they believe. And that is, number two, the power of the Savior. It is the power of the Savior. 
the glory of the gospel is that it can't be stopped. It can't be thwarted. It, it, it is, as we have said in another series, what? It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Verses 11 to 12, we're going back and forth, but verses 11 and 12, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. First, notice the contrast. Notice what we see prior to this, what was happening before this. The Pharisees, they believe Jesus is evil. That's before and after. If you look in this chapter, verse 22, the scribes who had come from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the devil. And he drives out demons by the ruler of the demon. Now Jesus points out how ridiculous that is. We'll get to that soon. But he is accused of being evil. And so they want to kill him. Yet the demons themselves, the real evil ones, they know exactly who he is and they proclaim him publicly. Now I want to be real careful here because the demons are not proclaiming him as Lord and Savior of their lives. They're not making a profession of faith. They're simply stating what they know. And they're not doing it to glorify God. That's what they do because they are declaring that God is, that Jesus is God but they're wanting to undermine him. If they can keep the focus on Jesus as the Son of God, then what would happen? Inevitably, that would short-circuit him being hated and taken to the cross. So Jesus says, be, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. And so the power of Jesus silences the evil ones. Now look down at 19. So we saw the end of that first scene. Now we're going to look at the end of the second scene. Uh, which is the end of the list of the apostles. And we read, And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Mark makes it very clear. So at the end of the first section, we have demonic forces trying to undermine Jesus' uh, mission. And now at the end of the second section, Mark makes this point of mentioning Judas Iscariot, specifically adding, who also betrayed him. Now why would he do that? Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and yet he chose him. Now, why did Jesus choose him? Because hard-hearted Judas was the means by which and through which Jesus would be betrayed so that the mission of the cross would occur. Now, what do we see in all of this? What is Mark's purpose here? I believe it is to demonstrate that the accomplishment of the gospel, again, cannot fail. Even when all hell is against you. Jesus has the power to neutralize the evil that plots against it, and he will even use it to accomplish his purpose. He's going to use it. He'll neutralize it, and he'll use it for his purposes. And do you ever feel like you're about to be swallowed up by the evil all around you? Do you feel like you're getting overwhelmed by the things that are happening to you? Man, this has been a pretty tough month for me this last month, but, and you sort of feel like, oh, this weight is just about to get us. Well, what do we do when we get into, because you know, we all have those situations. We all have the situations where it seems like the world around us is pressing in and pressing down on us. Are we going to be overwhelmed? Are we going to be destroyed? Are we going to take a fall? The answer is no. I want you to be encouraged by this, that God will use even the evil that takes aim at you to accomplish his purpose in your life. This is what Romans 8.28 was all about. 
We know that all things, all things includes bad things. We know that all things work together, work together. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All of the things. This is an encouragement. And it's especially as you're engaging the world with the gospel. The power of God is going to move and motivate you and bring about the purpose of God. And finally, we have number three, the grace of the Savior. Verses 13 through 19. Again, this is the second scene. This is the whole second scene here that we're looking at. And the first thing that we see again, Jesus went up the mountain and he summoned those he wanted. So first, Jesus called. He called people. Now think about this from the first point. He calls from every what? Tribe, tongue, nation. He calls out. Do you realize how amazing it is that Almighty God chooses to establish a people while they are in their sins? Romans 5.8, while we were in our sins, Christ died for us. So he's looking to do this and he's going to reside with us forever. Through us now, eternally with us, among us. God is going to tabernacle with us. He is going to bring the kingdom down and he's going to merge heaven and earth so that we are in his presence literally for eternity. What an amazing, amazing thought. Now, I want you to notice too, there were 12 of the apostles. Why were there 12 apostles? Where else do we see 12 of anything? In Scripture, we're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, or Jacob, the 12, those who made up those 12 tribes. And and what is it that we see in this? I believe that it is that Jesus was indicating that he was renewing his covenant to Abraham by establishing spiritual descendants from those who believe and repent. Paul talks about Romans 4, first part of Romans 9. Those who are descendants of Abraham, not necessarily of the flesh, but they are spiritual in nature. And so we see that going on here. And then secondly, he called them. I'm sorry, he appointed them. He called them was number one. He he appointed them, uh, number two, first of all, to be with him. Jesus appointed the apostles to be with him with him. He wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to equip them. And so he called them to himself. It is grace and it is all grace, but it is reality in grace that Jesus wants to be with you and he wants to be with me. We see this in other parts of scripture, in other parts of the New Testament. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. Come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy burdened. Come to me. I want you to come to me. John chapter 17, 24. This is the high priestly prayer before Jesus goes to the cross. And he prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Those of you who have trusted in Jesus. Jesus was praying for you in Gethsemane. I want to be with those who you've given me. And then we see in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 where uh, Jesus and the Spirit speaking uh, into the, the vision that John is having. He's speaking to the church in Laodicea who is neither hot nor cold. He said, I wish that you were one or the other, but I want to spew you out of my mouth because you're wishy-washy. 
But he goes on to say, and to call them back to himself. This is the context of the church. It's often used as a salvation verse. It's not a salvation verse. It's a call to the church where he says, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. I will eat with him and he with me. Those of you who are mine, I want to be with you. I want to dine with you. So if you're wishy-washy, if you're chasing after other things, hey, look, I'm here. You're mine. I'm here. Come to me. I will come to you and I will abide with you. What an incredible, incredible uh, thought. The heart of Jesus desires for us to be with him and that is grace. And then he said to send them. He called them to send them. And those he calls, he uses it. He uses. I want you to think about this just for a second. The God who calls you doesn't need you. The God who calls you doesn't need you. But he chooses to use you. That's an amazing thought. First of all, I'm really glad that he doesn't need me. If he needs me, we're in in trouble. You know, if he needs me to accomplish his mission and it's not going to get, you know, we're in trouble. But he chooses to use me. He chooses to use you. Why in the world would God choose you if he doesn't need you? If he's the one that does everything, why would he choose to use you and me? In order, that's the only thing I can come up with, in order for us to experience the joy in being used. To, be, to experience the joy of being called to advance the kingdom of God. To share that joy with us because there's great joy in seeing someone come to Christ in seeing someone freed from bondage if you've ever seen somebody have one of those aha moments where the gospel makes sense and they have they have been bound up by something and now they see that there's hope they see there's a way out they see that they are loved for the very first time it is an amazing experience to be as a part to be a part of that to see it to see them overcoming sin to experience the joy of the lord for themselves you get to experience the joy of the lord as you watch them start to experience the joy of the lord and that is a part of God's calling in our lives. Now, before we wrap up, I, I think it's important to briefly consider who these, who these guys were. Who were they? It's important for us to see who they are because of who we know that we are. And these guys were the most unlikely choices that you could think of. Man, nobody's going to hire these guys. I don't care how much they pad their resume, it is just not going to work. And yet this is who God chose. They were men, if you look through this list, men full of pride like Peter, self-centered like James and John, doubtful like Thomas. You had Matthew who was a tax collector, who was in cahoots with the Roman authorities, who were... uh, who were oppressing the Jewish people. So so he was like the Benedict Arnold. So he's at one end of the spectrum. Then you have Simon the Zealot at the other end of the spectrum. Zealots were were like Jewish terrorists. They're the ones who who engaged in guerrilla warfare to try to take out the Romans. So you've got these extremes with all of these people. And these are the people, the kinds of people that Jesus chose to use 
in establishing his church. Now, does that speak to the power of Christ in your life? Does that speak of the grace of God in this world? That he would choose people like that to establish his kingdom, to advance the kingdom. So I will ask you, what's wrong with you then? What is it about you that makes you the exception to this? What is it that you look at guys like this, you look at the, just the, the most unlikely people, the people that Jesus ought to be rejecting, and he chooses to use them. He chooses to be with them. He wants them with him. What makes you the exception that you're out of, out of the picture? You're too bad to, to be in the company of Christ. You messed up too many times. Your self-esteem is in the tank. You know you're a sinner. And it, sometimes it just seems to be the same sin over and over and over. And it's like, I, I want to be done with that. And then there it comes again. Does that exclude you? You're doing battle with sin, but it seems like it's winning. Jesus doesn't want to be with you, doesn't want to use you, couldn't love you. The wonderful thing that we see in this passage is that the grace of Jesus extends to all who call upon his name. Have you called on the name of Jesus? Have you not, in trying to be good enough to come to him, but you come to him because you're not good enough? Do you understand the difference? Because a lot of religious people, a lot of church people, a lot of Christian people don't get that. You don't try to be good enough to get to Jesus. You get to Jesus because you're not good enough. And you know that his grace extends to you. He wants to be with you. He chooses to call you to himself. Your response is to run to him. To run into his presence. Because through grace there is room for you and me. Jesus is the one who is establishing his kingdom. He calls people to come to him through revelation and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He not only overcomes evil that schemes to stop the gospel, he actually uses it for his purpose. He uses the most unlikely people like you and me to pour his grace over and to use us individually and together as a church to advance his kingdom. The question that we have to ask, very honestly, is what excuse do we have left what is it that, what is it about Jesus that, that is not attractive enough for us to, to give our all? That is not powerful enough to overcome the sin and the evil in our lives and in the world? And, and in which there is not grace enough to reach out to you and to change you, to transform you, to make you into what Jesus wants you to be? What is your excuse to not coming to him? What is your excuse for chasing after all the things that are bright and shiny and have all the promise of hope and happiness, but you know deep in your heart because you've tried it that it doesn't work. Where are you in your relationship to Jesus? I would encourage you to bow at his feet in faith, to believe, to trust, and to come to him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information about The Gathering, or if you would like to hear more, please visit GatheringChattanooga.com.